Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in rural science. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Eric Anderson, who will be discussing space travel for the public. Also, we'll find out why raspberries have hair. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Uh, not too bad, not too bad. It is officially now Dr. Frank Ling, is it not? Oh, thank you. Dr. Charles Lee, too, right? Indeed, indeed. Just the doctor of evil, as it were. So, I really did file, but not quite for the governorship. <laughs> again, <laughs> How's that going? Again, we're, again, we are running our own campaign for the governorship here on, on Berkeley Grox, uh, in case you wish to vote for Berkeley Grox for governor. On election day, just write us in. Write in Berkeley Grox, and uh, what what do we promise the people? We should lower the, the voting age down to five. That'll get more supporters. <laughs> I th- I think that would be our main, that's really our main contingent. Or, <laughs> the our, kids. The kids. So yeah. It's always about the kids. It's always about the kids. Well, here's some obscure fact to start off the week. I love obscure facts, especially when they start off the week, but seeing as how we're in the middle of the week, it's... <laughs> okay, to uh, to entertain the middle of the week. Okay. Uh, it turns out that squids can have eyes up to 30 centimeters in diameter. Up to 30 centimeters? Wow. That's pretty big for yeah. an eye. How big your eye? But the ones on my head are kind of small, but... <laughs> your x-ray vision is much probably a lot stronger. Yeah, yeah huh? you want to know about Okay, but here's a here's a real interesting story. Do you know what it would be like if we were uh, working in a colony of bees? I, I really don't, but uh, okay, so the, the squid thing had absolutely nothing to do with the no, story. No, okay. as I mentioned, it was obscure. That was the random fact for the the week. Okay. Yeah. It's going right. to get even weirder, too. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. Okay, so what about what about bees? And So it turns out that uh, if we're in a colony of bees, we won't be very lucky. It turns out in a regular colony, the queen handles the reproduction, and everyone else just works. That's my understanding, is there's the worker bees and then the queen bee who takes care of it all. Right, but uh, some researchers have found a uh, abnormal colony of bees in New Zealand, and it turns out that these worker bees are also uh, enjoying the party. Oh, really? Yes, due to some uh, genetic mutation. So they're they're also giving birth or, or having uh, having fun? Has they're they having say? fun and reproducing. And reproducing. Yes. And working. Yes. Well, that's not good. It's like they have to do both things at the same time. Multitasking, I guess. I guess so. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the modern era. They're, yeah. They're modern bees. Yeah. But uh, he thinks it's because apparently there's a gene called alien. I'm not sure what it refers to, but it uh, turns out that... Uh, if, I, these... if I were going to name the gene, I would, would not have named it alien, but anyway. <laughs> no, but in these abnormal bees, the uh, the gene seems to be damaged or turned off, and as a result, these uh, worker bees are also uh, part of the uh, the forbidden dance. Oh, the... <laughs> I thought that was the lumpata, but... Uh... <laughs> but uh, so anyways... I, thought, I thought they did the wax. Michael Dance, the bees. <laughs> I thought they had some kids' song for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the uh, Tinky Winky show or something. <laughs> well, if anyone wants to know more, um, the story is actually in The Economist, the July 26th edition. The, the Economist, okay. I, I have no idea why it's there. That's a good That's a good scientific source, as always. Right. Uh, or they can go to New Zealand, I imagine. Yeah, look up uh, Ben Alroy on the web for uh, the researcher working on this. <laughs> Okay, uh, moving on from uh, the bees having their fun in the uh, forbidden dance. 
There, are, of course, there are many other ways in which uh, you can have fun, and among them are the notorious drugs. Drug, wow. Particular amphetamine and cocaine. Hey, they're good stuff. Two of my favorites, you know. Uh-huh. I know where to find a chemical structure. That's the first step, you know, and then it's a slippery slope after that. Yeah. Uh, but it turns out that <clears throat> a group of researchers have discovered that drugs, as was previously thought, can affect your learning. You mean they just make you not concentrate or what? Well, they can actually change the structure of your brain such that you're less able to learn. Whoa, it's like impairment, dude. It is indeed impairment. So uh, what a group of researchers, Brian Kolb of Lethbridge University in Alberta, Canada, and colleagues did, was they gave uh, rats cocaine or amphetamine once a day for every 20 days, and then they looked at what changes occurred in the brain. And what they found was the dendrites on the neurons. Uh-huh. Those are the uh, inputs for the various cells in the brain. Right. Essentially, they don't grow as much. They don't have as many of these little spines oh. as normal rats. That's not good. No. And it's, it's quite fascinating because normal rats, when they're placed in a unique environment, they'll grow these spines all over the place. Mm-hmm. But when they're fed cocaine and amphetamine for a long time, they're unable to grow these spines. And as a result, they're less able to learn about their new environment. So are these effects temporary? Or are they uh, long-term damages? They didn't look to see what happened after they withdrew. Drew right. the cocaine, so it's a not known if you can uh, hmm. recover from it. Certainly, one would hope so. Yeah, because I'm a pimp here, man. <laughs> I guess I have a lot of recovering to do, so I certainly hope you can recover from it. It's called a grad school withdrawal, right? <laughs> you know, grad school, I think, is another thing that just sort of tears apart your brain. What were we talking about anyway? <laughs> Anyway, if you want to know more about this, you can uh, look in the recent edition of our favorite journal, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. PNAS. So, Charles, how hot do you have to get when you just have to pop? <laughs> you know, it depends whether I'm having fun or if I'm drawing drugs, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'll say uh, 300 Kelvin. 300 Kelvin. Yeah. Wow, that's not so bad. Yeah, around room temperature. Yeah. But it turns out... Which means I'm easy to pop. <laughs> <laughs> easy and excitable. I'm just, I'm popping all the... I'm popping right now, in fact. Is it mm-hmm. popping? Popping like a penguin. Uh, okay. So it turns out the upper temperature limit for popping has now gone up to 121 degrees centigrade or 250 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, pop. What what's popping here? What's going uh, on? We're talking about microbes, bacteria. Oh, microbes. Are they exploding, popping, or? Uh, well, well I mean, popping as in like dying off. Okay. Most likely they are popping <laughs> at that temperature. I've never heard this phrase used with uh, microbial death, but. <laughs> but you know that the temperature of boiling is 100 degrees right, centigrade, right? Right. So this is actually far above boiling temperature. Hmm. And what a group of researchers led by uh, Professor Lovely at University of Massachusetts Amherst has found that there's these microbes from the hydrothermal vents in the Pacific Ocean that can live up to 121 degrees centigrade. Right, right. They get their energy, actually, from the hydrothermal vents. Right, right. And it turns out that they can easily reproduce between 85 degrees and upper limit quite easily. So, you know, researchers are interested in what kind of proteins they have that allows them to sustain such high temperatures. Right. And one of the, one of the interesting things is that uh, the melting temperature of DNA, where the strands separate is uh-huh. actually like 100 degrees or something. So they're, they're able to keep their DNA together, which is yeah. fascinating. When does your DNA <laughs> fall apart, Charles? <laughs> I, I don't even know if I have DNA. <laughs> Maybe just proteins. Uh, huh? Yeah, that's right. Or carbs. No carbs. <laughs> no carbs. <laughs> yes, yeah, so uh, this is quite interesting because it shows that the upper temperature seems to be going higher and higher, uh, finding new bacteria. Excellent. I guess if anyone wants to know more, they can go to the recent issue of Science, Volume 301.
unfortunately, uh, a little somber note on, on things that go pop. Uh, the Space Shuttle Columbia. Ooh. Yes, an unfortunate tragedy. I remember that. Yes, we, we all do. They've come out with an explanation, and in four simple words, they're saying the foam did it. The foam did it? The foam did it. Oh, man. And it's it's been long suspected that foam was the leading cause of uh, the Space Shuttle right. Columbia. So this is the foam that fell off while they were at launch time, right? Right. The, this was foam on the external fuel tank. Uh-huh. Fell down, hit a wing, uh-huh. exposing a little bit of surface. So it caused it to crack a little bit. Right. And oh. that led for overheating in the wing, and that was about it. And these were words from uh, a press conference uh, released on Tuesday by G. Scott Hubbard, director of the NASA Ames Research Center. And uh, they're just saying they've looked at the whole thing. They've, they've started to recommend again that NASA should probably create an office that would have direct authority, safety, reliability, and quality assurance throughout the agency. Hmm. Didn't they do that right after Challenger? That, <laughs> unfortunately, those are the words, uh, similar words from the 1986 report of the Presidential Commission of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Ooh. So, but the the words in this report is slightly different, but the uh, message is unfortunately pressingly the same. Kind of makes you wonder. Yes. <laughs> But, uh, you know, on that somber note, it's not really a good lead-in for our next story, which is coming up, Tourists into Space. But, Tourists into Space, yeah. But, uh, you know, the quest of space moves on, and... Uh, here we go. Here we go. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, we'll be joined by Mr. Eric Anderson, president and CEO of Space Adventures, talking about spaceflight for the public. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, space, it's the final frontier. And human voyages into this uncharted realm are largely the province of a select few individuals working for governmental space agencies. But the dream of making spaceflight a reality for the general public may be closer than you think. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks to discuss spaceflight for the public is Eric Anderson, the president and CEO of Space Adventures, a company that organizes privately funded trips into space. Mr. Anderson, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, well, you started a uh, very fascinating company here, Space Adventures, and probably the dream of most people to go into space. I'm curious, have you sent anybody into space? Absolutely. First of all, the reason that we started Space Adventures, and I was a co-founder of the company five years ago, along with several former astronauts and other people from the adventure travel and the travel world, the reason we started Space Adventures was because we all believed that, first of all, space experiences were something that would have been very unavailable to people, the rest of us, for the last 40 years. And there's a great demand for people to experience space, as evidenced by the fact that the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum is the most visited museum in the world, and all the popularity of science fiction and space sciences and things like that. And though it's been very popular, it's also been very inaccessible, and so we wanted to, that, to make experiences available to more people. 
Secondly, we also believe that space exploration is something that's extremely important for the future. That is, the development of space for improving life here on Earth. And that's the end result of things uh, like space-based solar power and other types of things. And they all depend on better forms of transportation, which is what space tourism is all about. So anyway, uh, that's what Space Adventures' mission is, and that's how we were founded. And we've been lucky enough to be successful in having flown two tourists to the space station so far. We started in April of 2001 with a gentleman by the name of Dennis Tito, who paid $20 million to fly to the International Space Station. And then again in April of 2002 uh, with a gentleman by the name of Mark Shuttleworth, who became the first African, first from his country, South Africa, and the first from the African continent to fly in space, and who also flew for $20 million supporting the space program. It's a, it's a bit of a hefty fee, not quite yet for the general public, though. Well, that's true. Everything, I think, that is technological always starts out expensive, and it takes time for the prices to come down. But the prices will never come down unless those first few people do it. And the first few customers who bought mainframe computers and the first people who bought these big bulky cell phones and things like that can attest to that. It's the way of things. Mm -hmm. So they're certainly helping pave the way for the rest of us. So how, how long do you uh, anticipate, believe it might be, before this sort of thing becomes routine? Well, I think that space over the next 20 or 30 years is going to have an incredibly large impact on people's lives. We have a very interesting program that we are developing in cooperation with a number of companies called Suborbital Space Flight, in which people will be able to take short five or ten minute flights into space over 100 kilometers altitude, and we'll provide that experience for about $100,000 a flight in the next, next five years or so. And so that's actually quite remarkable. In the, I mean, it's still a not inexpensive experience, but it's also something that's much more available to the same group of people that do things like go to Antarctica or climb Mount Everest or go to the North Pole or, or other types of adventure locations. So... It's happening, and this is the 100th anniversary of flight this year. In 1903, the Wright brothers flew, and it's been 42 years since the first person went into space. And I think over the next 10 to 20 years, you're going to see as much progress in space exploration as we've made since the beginning. So it's wow. going to be an exciting time. Wow. It sounds, certainly sounds like it. That's right. I mean, we, in addition to selling space experiences and providing space experiences in space, we also provide space experiences on Earth, which we've done a number of ways throughout our programs in Russia and down in Florida and all around the world. We sell things like zero-gravity flights and flights in supersonic jets to the edge of space, high-G flights, simulators, centrifuges, underwater training, all those types of things. And we have thousands of customers, thousands of clients going through those experiences each year. Hmm. So it's very exciting. And uh, these, uh, these things are done in collaboration with the uh, Russian Space Agency, is that correct? Yes, we work with the Russian Space Agency. We work with the Cosmonaut Training Center where both Russian astronauts and cosmonauts and NASA astronauts are, are training constantly for space station flights. Uh, we also work with NASA. We've done programs down at the Kennedy Space Center taking people to watch launches and, and behind-the-scenes tours and things like that. Is, is there any reason why uh, you've, you've sent people aboard the uh, Soyuz spacecrafts rather than aboard NASA shuttles? Well, the primary reason why is because the Russian space agency has been much more receptive to the idea of commercial space. Mm. Now, I suppose necessity is the mother of right. invention, and they've needed money more than NASA has. Mm -hmm. NASA certainly has a much larger budget than the Russians do, but they've been very, very capitalistic and commercial, and, and I think that's a very important key for the future. Commercial activities in space make space more accessible for everybody. Unfortunately, NASA and other government agencies at times don't have 
the, well, shall we say, they don't have as much of an incentive to make things less expensive than private industry does. Right. And so when you have the, the free markets in control, ec- economies of scale and efficiencies and safety and all those different things tend to improve faster because there's a financial incentive for it. What have been the, the responses from the two people that have gone up? Well, their experiences have been unbelievable. Both Tito and Shuttleworth have said publicly many times that they, they that their time in space was perhaps the best time of their life and that the experience didn't only end with spaceflight. They were astronauts and will be astronauts for the rest of their lives. So it's just something that's so incredibly unique and meaningful, being able to see the Earth from space, all of humanity pass below your eyes every 90 minutes, seeing 16 sunrises and sunsets a day, and just being able to understand what a fragile planet we live on and and the kind of care that we need to take of it and the things that we need to do. It's a very, very meaningful experience and provides them with a lot of motivation and inspiration to do great things when they come back. I'm curious about whether or not the recent Columbia incident has affected at all the operations at your industry or overall space flight. The the Columbia accident was a horrible tragedy. Uh And out of that, we had a lot of, shall we say, that we were afraid that many of our customers may change their minds about flying in Mm -hmm. space. Fortunately, that didn't happen at all. All of the people who had been in touch with us or who had reserved seats with us or who were prepared to fly in space kept their way and have recommitted themselves to it. They're explorers. They're adventurers. These are people who understand that spaceflight can be risky, but that the human race can't achieve progress without risk. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's all about. So it's okay. We honor the memory of the Columbia astronauts who lost their lives and all of those who've lost their lives in pursuit of space exploration, and we pick up the flag and carry forward. And at this point, it's also worth noting that these people, though we use the word space tourism, they're not tourists. They're not people who go to the beach for the weekend and (laughs) sit around and sip margaritas without really thinking about what they're doing. These are people who've trained for months Mm -hmm. to participate in one of life's greatest adventures. And they're as much explorers as the people who do it professionally. It's just that they happen to have done it and paid for it out of their own pocket instead of out of taxpayer pockets. Mm. Well, while they're up there, do they take part in any of the missions that are going on in the spacecraft? Well, they have different missions. Uh, Mr. Tito's missions were a little simpler than Mr. Shuttleworth. He went up there to simply enjoy the space station, photograph the Earth, listen to music, and bring back the glory and the splendor of the spaceflight experience to people, and he's been giving speeches ever since then to that effect. Mr. Shuttleworth spent a little bit more time thinking about what he wanted to do in terms of projects that were of particular significance to his home country of South Africa. Mm. And so he did that. He developed an entire curriculum of education and and carried out experiments on stem cells and HIV vaccines that were to be done in zero gravity. And it was actually quite useful and, and very motivational. I mean, he went on a tour after he came back from space of school children in South Africa and basically saw and interacted with tens of thousands of kids uh, who were all motivated by his experience and who may now decide to pursue careers in (laughs) science and education. So it's a really big deal. It really is. It's frankly amazing. So how many people are are lined up now for uh, future space flights? Our most recent space flight program that we've announced, we announced in June this year, and we had signed an agreement with the Russian Space Agency about 30 days beforehand where we've acquired two seats on future Soyuz missions 
to be flown either on one rocket or separately on, on different rockets to fly to the space station. And up until this point, we've had several customers, say half a dozen or maybe up to 10 or so, very wealthy people from around the world who want to fly in space, who wanted to realize their dreams. And after the announcement, several more came out. And now we've got a good solid group of between 10 and 15 who are very committed in various stages of completing medical exams and looking at their schedules and finalizing exactly the types of things that they would want to do to realize the space experience. And so over the next few months, we'll be finalizing the agreements with those who will fly first and, and flying them sometime in the end of 2004 and the beginning of 2005. Fascinating. Uh, we're running a little bit out of time, but I'm just curious, where would you like to see space travel go in the next couple of years, or what's your vision for the company? Over the next few years, I would like to see the development and the beginning of operation of suborbital vehicles, which I'm quite sure will happen. I would like to see several more people fly to the International Space Station and carrying out various types of projects. I would like to see the initiation of operations of commercial spaceports around the world where people can go and train for spaceflight and suborbital vehicles will operate as well. And I would like to see the attitudinal shift away from government spaceflight and the fact that the government has to be in control of all human spaceflight and the acceptance that commercial human spaceflight is something that's perhaps far more important for the future because of its ability to generate efficiencies and economies of scale and do the things that government can't do. Well, I would certainly hope those visions are realized. Well, Mr. Anderson, uh, I just want to thank you very much for a very fascinating discussion and for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Thank you very much. Also, if uh, any of your listeners would like to find out a little bit more, please visit us on the web at spaceadventures.com. Well, I certainly hope they do that. Thanks very much. Okay. You were just listening to Mr. Eric Anderson, President and CEO of Space Adventures, discussing space travel for the public. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Coming up next, you can find out why do strawberries have hair. So stay tuned.
to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why strawberries have hair? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Did you ever wonder why raspberries are covered with those tiny fuzzy hairs? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. If you enjoy nibbling on fresh-picked raspberries, then you've no doubt noticed the layer of fuzz that covers this fruit. To learn why it's there, let's visit a raspberry farm in northern Pennsylvania. Here we are, perched on top of a raspberry, which is dangling off a very healthy bush-like plant. If you look closely at the body of this fruit, you'll notice that it's not a single berry at all. It's a cluster. This particular raspberry is made up of 50 or so bead-like fruits. Each bead is called a druplet. Inside each druplet is sweet fruit and the tiny seedlets that help a raspberry reproduce. And the outside is covered with a thin skin that grows tiny hairs. These hairs help hold one druplet to another so that each bead of fruit has a better chance of ripening a better chance of staying together, and a better chance of creating more raspberry plants. Since this raspberry is made up of 50 or so druplets, and each druplet has tiny hairs, our entire cluster of fruit beads ends up looking fuzzy. And tasting delicious. As my grandmother would say, today's show was the berries. Thanks for joining us and for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Mm, mm, mm. I love those hairy raspberries. I love hairy raspberries and uh, eating them with fine, fine ladies. <laughs> Everyday Science lady, uh, do you like raspberries? I like raspberries. Uh, I hope you like raspberries. Mmm, raspberries. Simmer down, Charles. Simmer down. Simmer down now. Okay, and now here's a Tokyo kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is photosynthesis? Photosynthesis is the process by which light is used to convert carbon dioxide and water into a higher energy form, which we call sugar. And the sugar can be used by people as energy for their diet. Ah, thank you very much, Tokyo Kid. Aye, that's very great and interesting. That shade you're telling me. Oh, but not interesting shade is. We're Scots. We're kind of hairy, aren't we? Aye, we're hairy, aren't we? Aye. Aye, we're really hairy. One says, and the question is, though, how many average hairs do the average person have on their body? Well, if you know the answer, just think you know the answer. Email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but hey, you just might need a shave. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.